Hello, every loving one of you. Welcome to Digging Through with Jesse Alvarez, a podcast celebrating the cultural omnivores in all of us. Sometimes I interview folks who are doing some creative stuff, and sometimes I just talk. In today's episode, I invited writer Amanda Headley to talk about her new book, Till We Become Monsters. Amanda Headley, welcome. You're the author of the novel, Till We Become Monsters. Yes. And I'm super excited to talk to you because I did read this book and you've implanted images in my head (laughs) that I'm living for, but also very afraid of. (laughs) Actually, that that kind of warms my heart. (laughs) It's it's planted. It's in there. It was such a fun read. I mean, it was it's a scary book. And um a haunting book but it's also like you know it's fun it's fun to be scared it's fun to like envision the story and you're you're so great at creating this world and creating these characters and feeding them with a lot of dysfunction a lot of other stuff that is not necessarily part of the book but it's sort of there and it's informing the story so thank you thank you for that experience oh no thank you for your words um I really appreciate hearing that (laughs) So let's talk about, um, well, first let's talk about writing, just a general writing conversation. We're, we're at a certain moment in our lives right now with all the stuff that's going on. I like to check in with writers, how they're feeling creatively at this time, because I personally am having a hard time composing yeah. artistic stuff. So how's it going for you? How has it been? It's a very, very weird time. And I I talked to a few other authors and I think they're going through the same thing where like last year was so incredible creativity wise. I mean, I, I worked, I I worked remotely and I had nothing else to do. And all these ideas were just burning and churning. And I was just writing when I wasn't working um, my full-time job, my day job. I have a lot of stuff done and, and that I need to sit down and edit obviously. Um, But I have a lot of stuff that I created and it's just kind of sitting there because for some reason at the start of the summer, my novel came out June 1st. I had all this stuff lined up and planned over the next several months to get out. I want to do a short story collection. I want to do a sequel to this novel. There's another novel. And it's like the well went dry. (laughs) And I think it's just, I mean, the ideas are still there. I'm still on a daily basis, scribbling stuff in journals, writing ideas down, but I really have to force myself to sit at the computer. In Pennsylvania, uh, we kind of went back to normal. Um, Most stuff is open. Um, I was down in Durham. Uh, Actually, I just drove up from this morning, Durham, North Carolina, and they still aren't back 100%. But here outside of in Philly, um, we, we are pretty much back to normal, going out, hanging out with friends and all that. So I I just feel like I'm I'm struggling to find the time to sit and write. My brain is going nonstop constantly, but I'm just struggling to find, maybe it's find the time right now because we just had a whole year off from life. 
that we're just trying to enjoy it again. I don't know if, if you're feeling the same way. I know some of my author friends are feeling the same way. Hopefully I hear it's going to be a rough winter. So maybe we'll get, get snow wise, we'll get snowed in so we can sit back at our desk. Yeah. It's been a weird couple months. I'm ready to get back to it. I think most writers are introverted to a degree. Um, if not a hundred percent that, that time where everything basically stopped and we just were home was sort of like, I felt like it was a gift and I had to take advantage of it. And so yeah. same thing. I was like, Oh, I, I don't have enough work. I, I have all this time and let me do all these projects that I've been thinking of doing. And, you know, finally I have the time to do it. After a while, I missed people and I, I was surprised, <laughs> quite frankly. Same here. Um, I'm, I love being an introvert and I thought I could go months on end without seeing people. I'm, I'm thinking if the apocalypse ever happens, I can hole up somewhere and just live the rest of my life alone. Almost at the year marks when I started go, okay, I miss people, you know, it, and it, it's been weird to think that because normally like I could spend days on end by myself and not talk to anybody but myself and my plants be fine with it. But I started, I started going stir crazy. I was surprised. And now it's like, I'm hanging out with people. And I usually, you know, once a week I'd hang out with people. And now it's like every night I'm like hanging out with my friends. (laughs) They're probably like, who is this person? That sounds healthy. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm intrigued because your book starts with, this main character, who we presume is a main character, because the book so switches things around for us as we keep going. And it's this young boy, and he's an introverted, imaginative young boy with a relationship, a close relationship with his grandmother. And it, it's this sort of little snippet of peace that is immediately thrown overboard by the presence of his older brother, who is somewhat the complete opposite of him, at least that's what we, we think when we when they're introduced to us in the book. So talk to me a little bit about these characters, why you chose boys, for instance, to tell the story and, and why these particular brothers. I mostly always write about women. Um, my main characters are mostly women for the most part. I have one short other short story that's a, a male central main character protagonist, but other than that, it's always been women. And so I kind of wanted to try something different. Um, and that's why I made them brothers versus sisters or a brother and a sister. I kind of like the relationship that grew or didn't grow between these two brothers. It kind of like intrigued me. And and so, cause there's a couple of times I thought about switching it up, but I just, I really liked Corn and Davis and how they interacted with each other. Deep down, they do love each other as siblings, but they never show it. They never openly admit to each other how they feel about each other. They never go to each other and say, hey, bro, you know, when you do this, it bugs me. Like if they had those open conversations, you know, the book wouldn't have turned out the way it did. I I, I felt like those two boys as um, guys just, I don't know, they just really always went together well and then to pull in their best friend Tate. It, it, I don't know. It just always felt right to me to have it as guys. And then you had Addie, who's the little shining light, who's trying to move stuff around and, you know, get everyone to get along. But it, it's just weird. They just all kind of like said, hey, this is who I am. Like, I didn't like go out, set forth to do it, you know, to choose what gender everybody was. It was just, they just kind of 
came like that. <laughs> it's so funny how a lot of the book, it, it, there's this relationships between the brothers, relationships between the brothers and their parents. And, you, you know, you're sort of introducing all these relationships at the beginning of the novel, sort of setting things up for, I guess, the second half of the novel, which sort of becomes more a horror story, right? But mm-hmm. the beginning is, is almost like a gothic novel, the way it starts. And, and sort of there's a certain dark romanticism going on with the town they live in and the grandmother and how she lives. And, and then they all come together and these very big ideas come out. But it sounds to me like organically you wrote the story with these just these simple characters and then started growing. Yeah. A lot of this was just maybe driven by, you know, how I felt that day. It, it's just that's the characters actually, they're the ones that wrote the book. I mean, I just kind of put it on paper. It just flowed like how I wrote this story. Um, I was actually at a writing retreat in Vermont. It, it started out as a short story idea that was a bigger story to tell, essentially. And that's, that's kind of what I was told um, when some people had read it. And so like I was at this retreat in Vermont and I just sat down and started thinking more about it. And literally I wrote a 90 page outline in two days it just flowed like the story flowed the characters just came to light um i was in a weird place in my head at that time period um back in 2013-2014 it just the story just kind of spilled out and the characters just kind of grew from that i tried to control them sometimes but they just had a mind of their own yeah the, the story the story really focuses on relationships falling apart and how people deal with those relationships falling apart and not realizing they can control saving them, but they have to speak about it. They have to talk up, you mm-hmm. know, they, ha- they have to address things that they're uncomfortable with or say things that they're afraid of to each other to help save those relationships. But none of the, n- no one in the family does that for each other. Like they all just kind of close down, keep it to themselves, let things lay as it lay as they lie instead of trying to salvage the relationship. So, you know, they all want to click. They all want to get together. They all want to be a family. But at the same time, they just don't talk to each other. They don't support each other's dreams. And I've had a couple of people say, wow, I I don't think people are really that, that dysfunctional. But, you know, it's it, sometimes you run into situations where you're just like with people and they just don't support you. And you know, maybe this is a little played up. It is fiction, but um, I do believe that there are unfortunately people out there in those situations where they're in relationships or a part of families where they feel like their voice isn't being heard. Instead of speaking up about it, they shy away, they turn in on themselves and, you know, kind of go to dark places. So I don't know, maybe there's like a little hidden meaning in there to, you know, just be true to yourself and if you're uncomfortable or if you're sad about something or feel like you're not getting what you want out of life, speak up, mm-hmm. speak up. So sorry, that was a bit of a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> but there, you know, I mean, you're, you're also speaking of characters that you created that all have experienced some form of trauma. And that's a part of the book that's not necessarily part of the present story, but it's, it's hovering over all these characters heads, right? The, each each character, uh, the grandmother, the the parents, the mother and the father, they they all have gone through something traumatic. Yeah. And then of course the brothers together go through something traumatic. And it all feels like it's feeding 
And to me, that's where, in a way, the monsters came into the picture. Like to me, that was the beginning of the monsters of the story. When I was reading the book, as a writer, I, I can't help but like try to figure out, oh, this is symbolizing this. And I can't help but do that. I just don't enjoy the freaking story. I have to like start, <laughs> you know, adding stuff to it. I kept thinking about this relationship between the monster, the villain, and the hero of the story. And to me, it felt like those three archetypes, it was like you had them always come up against each other in every chapter in some way or form, you know, not necessarily as characters, sometimes just as a character with the battling some sort of fear of distance or not being loved by another parent or, you know, some something that's sort of like they want, but they don't have. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wanted to talk about monsters, villains, and heroes, and like, how do you sort of think about those archetypes? Um, well, so to look at heroes and villains, I mean, villains are heroes in their own mind. And that's just always like reading about the villain's journey versus the hero's journey. That's just something that's just always fascinated me. And you know, I've always been interested in like the villain or the underdog because they always have a story to tell that we are not seeing. We always see what the hero's story is. We always see how the hero is going to save the day. But I've always been interested in the villain's story to understand why they're doing what they're doing, what drove them. The hero and the way the stories are written to uh, make the hero essentially the hero makes the villain look like a bad person. If they are bad, that I mean, everyone's born good, essentially. You know, I, the, the, the one thing I always look at in the, with this book was nature versus nurture. Are we born evil or are we created to be evil? I still don't know the answer to that. I do feel that there are people who are born good and, you know, just through life circumstances become corrupt over time. And so it's always interested me from the villain's perspective, you know, what was their life? What was their trigger to kind of turn down that dark path um, and go the way they did? And why do they think they're the hero of their own story? So that's just something that's always interested me. Why you really don't know who the villain and who the hero is in the story um, until we become monsters, because both of the main characters are good in their own rights and they're also bad. So I try to mix up the good versus evil. So you really don't know who's the good person, who's the bad person. And then, you know, the monster kind of sits in there in in the shadows because monsters are always thought to be bad, but there there are good monsters in this world. Like if you look at folklore, you know, there, there are some legends of good monsters helping people and, you know, leading them to safety and things of that nature. And so the, the monster in this story, and I'll, I'll talk about the Wendigo here in a little bit, because that, that's kind of the monster. The monster themselves is kind of like the shadow in between the hero and the villain, because you don't mm-hmm. quite know where that monster sits. And then if you look at the Wendigo themselves, so the Wendigo is from uh, Native American folklore, and it's uh, a, a monster that's kind of born out of human greed, uh, human envy, greed, gluttony, those kind of uh, emotions of want, like want and needs. 
the legend goes that if you become so greedy enough or gluttonous enough to consume another person to essentially take on an essence of them, like if you want their smart, you eat their brain. If you want their strength, you eat their heart or muscles, things of that nature, that you'll be infected by this spirit that essentially uh, transforms you into this gluttonous creature that's constantly consuming and the body grows in proportion to the meal that it ate. So that way it's constantly hungry, never satisfied. Mm. So with the monster though, and I'm trying not to give away anything in the story, but there's something specific that this monster keeps going after to consume because it's missing it in its life. And it's actually really sad that that is what the monster is trying to consume because it's something that we all want in our lives and that's love the monster isn't getting that. And so it's trying to consume it. And a lot of people would see that monster as a villain, but look at what its drive is. It didn't get love and it's sad. You know, it's missing something. It's missing this, this part of itself and it's trying to gain it. It's trying to gain it in the only way it knows how. And that's unfortunately through violence and murder, but you know, cannibalism, it, it, it's just trying to become whole. And so that's kind of what I was exploring with hero versus villain journey and how the monsters fit in with that. You're writing a genre novel, which sort of has rules to it. In a, I mean, at least, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I, I'm not you know, a genre writer, but to me, it feels like genre books do have a formula, but really good writers of that genre subvert that formula in some way. Like there's always something you don't expect. So then you're like, oh, wait, I thought I had it figured out and damn it, they got me. <laughs> um, which you do, you know, in your book. I mean, I, I, there is a subversion here. It, it sort of starts at the character level with the two brothers. I think we figured them out in that first two chapters, let's say. I think we, we feel like, okay, I, I get the relationship. I get what this and then all of a sudden it's subverted and you're seeing more glimpses of each one. And with each glimpse, it's it's becoming a little more entangled and hard to tell. Like you're saying that there's there is something there between the two. And we don't know yet which side they're falling on, which I found really enjoyable to read. <laughs> yeah, um, I like breaking rules. So, um, you know, I just... I, I know that there are rules to follow, but I just want to write what I want to write. I want to say what I want to say. You know, I'm I'm going to do it. I guess people don't have to read it if they don't like that I'm breaking the rules. But, you know, it's just I'm I'm doing this for me. I'm doing this because I want to write. I want to share something. I want to share my thoughts with the world. I want to share my perspective because sometimes I have weird perspectives on things and I think it's, it's how I connect with people. I connect with people through writing. So I'm just going to do it the way I know how to. And that's just to write what's in my heart and in my brain. Um, I'll, I'll follow rules that need to be followed, like with grammar and things of that nature as best as I can. I am, I am terrible at grammar. I just want to do what I want to do. <laughs> I don't want to be told how to write. You know, I got to follow, you know, if it's a zombie story, you know, they, they can't be thinking creatures. They have to be mindless and just consume. And, you know, I just, I just actually had a, a, zomb, a zombie short story come out uh, 
last week in Midnight from Beyond the Stars, and it really throws the zombie trope on its head. I like to break the rules. Rules are meant to be broken. I agree. <laughs> I agree. And also it, it keeps you, it keeps the genre alive, you know, because it's sort of evolving with every writer that's yeah. breaking that rule, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it becomes stagnant. If you keep, if everyone keeps doing the same thing over and over again, it's going to be boring and you're going to know what people, you're, everything's going to be predictable. And that's just too boring. I like it when people go out there and do really crazy shit. Yeah, that's super exciting, I think, you know, uh-huh. for for the for the, just those other books that are also breaking those rules, because it's sort of like yeah. encouraging it, you know, rather yeah. than trying to like make everyone fit a mold. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I kind of feel like we're daring each other be like, oh, I did this. What are you going to do? You know, so I, I, I like it and I like the community because um, there's a there's a lot of people who are breaking a lot of authors, um, specifically in the horror genre. I don't know, you know, about too much on the other genres because um, I haven't broken into those genres yet. But uh, with the horror genre, I just feel like we're daring each other to be like, "All right, what do you got? What yeah. are you going to come out with next? What do you? What rule are you going to break?" <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, on Twitter, I, I have a couple of friends who write horror, and I see them talking to each other and yeah. just you know trying to figure out new ways of of doing each other. I guess. Yeah, yeah. How, how are we going to one up each other? And you know, it, and and. And we want to see that for each other. You know, yeah. we want all yeah. of us to be successful um, and write really crazy, scary stuff that just terrifies people and give them nightmares. Your writing is now being interpreted by people who have now lived through a pandemic. And I think, unfortunately for writers, a lot of works are going to be seen through the lens of that person's experience during this time. Because in some ways, your book. I mean, I was doing it. I was sort of like seeing, oh yeah, this is like kind of what happened with Trump. You know, like <laughs> I kept doing that in my head. I'm like, why am I doing that? Just enjoy the story. You know? <laughs> but I, I think it is a natural reflex for writers to start, you know, incorporating what's happening in their lives into whatever they're reading. Mm-hmm. How does that make you feel as when you're inventing these stories? And does that bother you? Is that something that you just expect? No, it's it's something I expect because everyone's going to have their own interpretation of a story. And I don't, I, I want people to think of my story however it feels in the moment for them. I don't want to script it for them to say, this is what I'm saying and you have to abide by it. You know, I want people to come in and with their own experiences, read what I write and take from it what they feel is correct. You know, earlier you had mentioned, you briefly mentioned about trauma and yeah, this is a pretty traumatic book. Everyone in the the book has experienced some level of trauma and people are going to read this. Everyone has trauma in their lives and we all, all of our traumas are different. And so something that may bother one person may not bother another person. And so both of them are going to walk away with a completely different interpretation of the book. I like that. I like seeing how people can look at one thing and think of it this way and, you know, look at the same thing in an, in another way. I, I think that's just, it's, it's great because it's, it's showing individuality. It's showing um, creativity on the part of the reader. You know, it's just letting people be free thinking. Fear is very much a part of this book and not just because of the active plot. Every character in this book fears something. 
is this fear something that comes from you or is it something that you're just investigating through these characters? That's actually a really good question. I never sat and thought about that. I fear, yeah, actually, yeah. My fear is not knowing who people really are. You know, you, you, you're, you spend time with people, you spend years with people, and then one day out of the blue, they can take their mask off and be this completely different person. And that's what I fear um, is always not knowing who people truly are. And that's kind of like the core of the book is people are hiding who they are and they're wearing this mask and they're not sharing their feelings or, you know, who they truly are. And so everyone who sees them has a completely different perception of that person than what is the right perception or the right understanding of what that person is. So yeah, that's, that is something that I fear is not truly knowing who people are. It's interesting because I know for me as a teenager, I gravitated towards transgressive books. For me, that fear of not knowing people, those books sort of proved it like you know like it's it, it was a comfort to me to go to a transgressive writer because to me it felt like they were actually exposing this like they were talking about the things that nobody else was actually talking about yeah. that there is this underlying thing that we all that's in all of us and if we're lucky it's it's just there and it stays there because we have enough love we have enough positivity that keeps us grounded sometimes we're not lucky and sometimes there is something that happens in our lives that pulls us away from that. So I, I really understand what you're talking about. I understand that fear very well. <laughs> yeah, it's a hard one. I don't know how to get over that fear. <laughs> so yeah. just roll with it and learn. <laughs> I mean, it might just be, you know, being human. I mean, yeah. know, there's so many people that come and go in your life and some that's are true. great. And then you do learn from those that aren't so great. I mean, yeah, that's, that's the only- true. That's very true. (laughs) You hope you can learn something from them. Folklore is also a big part of the book. It it actually influences some of the actions of some of the characters. So talk to me about the folklore that's in the book. Was it something that you just sort of researched or or are you just interested in folklore in general? Like, How does that play into your writing? Um, I've always been interested in folklore because to me, folklore is or our stories that are passed down through the generations that are basically warnings, you know, don't do this or this will happen. You know, don't eat people or you'll turn into a Wendigo and keep eating people. Monsters in the book came from folklore because I just wanted a little bit of influence there. I didn't want to dwell on the folklore. I didn't want to rehash folklore or legends and things of that nature. I wanted to use it as kind of a vehicle to help progress the story because the story in of itself is a warning, you know, be yourself. There's also, and this is one of my fears, is there's nature and then there's our smallness in nature. The cabin to me, for instance, is such a scary symbol. Uh, being someone who grew up in the city all my life, the very few times, a handful of times I've been out in the wilds alone, um, have been terrifying. <laughs> you know, that that silence, the stars, the, the greatness of the trees, all that stuff scares the shit out of me. <laughs> and that is cosmic horror. <laughs> so talk to me about cosmic horror. Oh, that is man's insignificance in the universe. 
you know, we go through life thinking that we are these great beings, but really we're just ants on the head of a pin. You know, we are nothing in compared to the grand scheme of the universe. I mean, our entire existence could be wiped out tomorrow and the universe won't even blink an eye. It's, it's really reality. I mean, we are nothing in this universe. We really are. I mean, we're not contributing any way to the health of the universe. I mean, we're destroying our planet. Um, (laughs) So, you know, we really don't benefit the universe. So yeah, it's just uh, cosmic horror has just always been something that's just completely fascinated me. And the, the thoughts that you have of being out in the cabin, being out in the woods, I grew up in the woods. Um, and I lived most of my life in the woods. I'm always out. I, I probably shouldn't, but I hike a lot by myself and things of that nature. Yeah. Like I'll, I'll go up on a Vista and I'll just sit and look out across the mountain range, not a soul around me. And I just think, wow, this is, I'm very tiny. I'm very tiny in the grand scheme of it all. But it's also, I can see how it's also, you know, this communion that you have, there's an opportunity to have a communion with nature when you're that alone as well. So as small as you are, you can actually also be part of that universe, right? Yes, yes, yes. You can go out there and you can connect and become one with the trees, one with the rock and just be quiet and observant, be one with it. Yeah. Minnesota is where the the book takes place. Why Minnesota? I I know that a lot of the book is sort of in, in those empty lonely nature filled places, but is that the draw to Minnesota? Is there something else? Um, uh, The Wendigo lore uh, does have roots there. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where I I wanted to set the book was where the, the lore had some roots because it's part of the history of the land um, and of the people. uh, And uh, so that's kind of why I kind of placed it or set, put the setting there cannibalism <laughs> i know that's one of those um possible taboo subjects although i oh I it's very taboo <laughs> you think so <laughs> well, and and i actually i just learned after writing this book that talking of the wendigo is very taboo like i shouldn't even be saying the name because oh. yeah so um if i'm offending everyone i am very sorry i did not realize that it was very taboo to talk about it too is that because there's a disrespect there if you talk about it? Yeah, I've heard that. And I've heard that you're essentially um, inciting the spirit, you know, calling it oh. to you. So I've, I've heard both of those aspects. So I apologize. Um, I did not know that until after I wrote the story. The nature versus man concept I mean, is sort of the cannibalism is just part of that story. Really. Oh, yeah. Um, on the Donner Party. Donner Party. Yes. Um, we have the Uruguayan flight that fell in the 70s, which I actually, when I was a little kid, again, transgressive, I watched the movie that, <laughs> and it was, it was traumatizing at the time. That, that's kind of where my interest, and I'm not a red meat or, you know, I'm not a big meat eater anymore, um, especially since researching all this cannibal stuff, but um yeah, that book just, or the, sorry, that movie, um, just always kind of blew my mind about, I think that was probably my first exposure to cannibalism was that movie. And so it's, it's always stuck in my head. It's always stuck in my head. And so that's kind of where 
And then I read the story of the Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood shortly after that. And it, yeah, it, it, this story's always been in my head. And then, you know, we have all these Hollywood films that deal with the subject. I yeah. mean, it's, it, so it's, it's a pretty, um, I don't, I don't want to call it a trope, but it's something that exists in, in our literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. You can, you can find it in the most obscure places. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So we talked, I was, I kind of mentioned a little bit the Gothic sort of sensibility at the beginning of the book that sort of shifts to a more modern horror story. I wondered about that. I wonder like that relationship for you as a writer, like, is that, there's this sort of classic sense of of gothic as being suspenseful and psychological and symbolic, not necessarily um, graphic or even violent. It's just a mm-hmm. suggestion of violence. Usually, were you playing with the, that scale yes. a little? Okay. Yeah, because I I I love both. Like I. I just remember like all the Vincent Price movies where the horror happened off screen. Um, and a lot of my favorite books from when I was younger, like Northern Abbey, you know, those are all Gothic, Gothic romance stories. And I just, I just loved how you, you didn't quite see the horror. It was in, it was insinuated, but you never quite see it. Um, you know, like with the Bronte sisters work, um, and mysteries of Adolfo and all that, like it's always hinted at, but you never see it. That scares me more than in your face gutting someone because my imagination will come up with something way worse than something that's more visual. But then on the other hand, I do like the more graphic stuff. I've always had this fascination with the medical field, even though I'm, I'm not in that field. Um, I did spend several years. I was an EMT, so I got to see some graphic stuff. It's never bothered me. I've always been like that person that would like, if I cut my finger open, like I'm just sitting there poking at it. Like, ew, what is that? Oh, uh, that's my bone. Your, your character Davis is sort of a personification of this. Like you. He's at ease with it because on one hand, he's, he's saving people, but on the other hand, you know, he's like, that's, it's just a body. It's just a body. Yeah. It's just, I've always been drawn to both sides between, um, you know, the Gothic to kind of like the extreme, I don't want to say splatter punk. Um, cause sometimes splatter punk gets to be a little too much for me, but you know, things of that nature, like with splatter horror, slasher horrors and things of that nature where, you know, they're just running around with machetes, chopping people up. Yeah, so I, I kind of wanted to write something that had both in it, where the first half lulled you into a sense of serenity and peacefulness, and then you get it towards the end. <laughs> yeah, but it has a, it, in some ways, it's like it's got a bigger punch because you do that. You kind of are balancing those two things out. In my head, I was in a place, and all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, shit, what's it? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of blood all of a sudden. And, uh, but it all sort of worked itself out. Like, even though, um, you know, the end is what the end is, it felt like that all was meant to be like that, that, that sort of like, they, they were meant to work together like that. Mm-hmm. Those, those two stor- storytelling streams or whatever you want to call it. It kind of intensifies. The characters aren't getting what they want out of life. And they're just so upset that their anger 
and their sadness is increasing. And so I, I, as I was writing it, I felt like that was kind of being uh, reflected in the action that ended up happening within the rest of the book. And in the beginning, it's just a sibling rivalry, they're butting heads. And so the action in the beginning of the stories kind of reflected of that, of, you know, a, a somewhat normal family where two brothers aren't getting along, but as they grow, the action starts to reflect the anger that both have for each other. It just kind of flowed that way. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good marriage between those two things. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so you're talking about possibly a sequel to this book. Are you thinking series or are you thinking just another part two to this? No, just, just a part two. Um, what I've been, when people ask me about it. So this Till We Become Monsters is about families falling apart. The sequel, which will be horror, um, is going to be about relationships coming together, families coming together. Mm. So that's all I'm going to say about it. Darker than this one. Um, It's going to go to some really awful places. So um, I'm actually really excited about it. I'm enjoying all the the pre-work that I'm putting into it right now. It's been a lot of fun. That sounds good. Can't wait for it. (laughs) So do you want to read a little excerpt from the book? Sure. I would enjoy that. So I'm going to read, it's about midway through the book and it's, it's a chapter where that's kind of starring Maeve, who is Corin's girlfriend. Maeve stared at the thin white lines of the light that sneaked through her closed blinds. She felt unsettled again. The clock on her nightstand read 1239 AM, well after midnight. Closing her eyes, she willed herself back to sleep. However, there was a soft noise coming from the other side of her dorm room that prevented her from nodding off. A sound that made her think of bread being torn apart. She sat up and squinted her eyes, trying to get them to adjust as she looked past the light filtering through her blinds. She couldn't see anything but her desk and a black mass next to it that she was pretty sure was her chair with the jacket thrown over it. Maybe the sound was coming from the other side of the wall where the janitor's closet was located. Throwing off her covers, Maeve got out of bed. Her feet touched the purple shag rug that she had put on the floor to cover the cold linoleum. As she walked forward, static on the tendrils of the rug fibers caught the hem of her long, light blue nightgown, as though trying to hold her back. She hiked up her nightgown slightly to stop pulling. She bumped into the chair as she reached her desk. It was slid under the desk and her jacket was not on it. Maeve looked to her right at the black mass and as she did, she clicked on her desk light. Maeve jumped back with a screech. Corin sat huddled on the floor with his knees up to his chest, his back to her. His hair was shaggier and seemed longer than normal and it swayed as he bobbed his head. Corin? Maeve whispered, confused. She had watched him drive off earlier to Ratchet that morning. How could he be here? And how could he have gotten into her room without her knowing? He didn't hear her and continued to bob his head. The soft tearing sound was coming from him. He was doing something. Maeve took a tentative step to walk around to face him. Corin, she said again a little louder. This time his head snapped up and he glared at her. She gasped and took several steps back. 
while his left eye was covered by a long lock of hair, his right eye gleamed black, solid black. Maeve kept walking backwards and soon bumped into our bookshelf, upsetting a few books that were sitting on top of it. They fell to the ground with a thud, but neither Maeve nor Corin broke eye contact. He smacked his lips as he chewed, and that is when Maeve saw his mouth was smeared with blood. She covered her mouth with her hands as she let out a scream. Corn was eating the flesh off his right arm. Maeve? The sound of her name sounded like gravel in his mouth. He stood letting his right arm drop slack. Rivulets of blood streamed down the chewed appendage, dripping onto the shag carpet. He raised his other hand out to her, fingers clawed. His eye burned with the black hellish fire. She couldn't move. She was frozen in place and couldn't get away. His hand shot forward and grabbed her by the neck. His fingers dug into her skin and it felt like stabbing ice. You, you don't know me, Corin said in the same rough voice that didn't sound like his own. Maeve screamed and sat up in bed. She was freezing as she kicked her blankets to the floor. Even so, her body was covered in sweat. Wildly, she grasped for the switch on her nightstand, and clicking it on, she looked around the room. No one was here. Corin wasn't here. She placed her hand on her chest and coaxed herself to slow her breathing. What a nightmare. There was a knock at her door, and she jumped. Who is it? Her voice squeaked. She was afraid of who was on the other side. It's Anna, your RA, the muffled voice from the other side of the door. Are you okay? I heard screaming. Maeve got up and made her way to the door, holding onto her neck. She swore she could still feel Corin's icy grip. Unlocking the door and cracking it open, she saw Anna standing there, concern etched across her face. I'm okay, really. Just, just had an awful nightmare, Maeve said. Oh, okay, Anna smiled. Can you open the door and let me take a peek inside? to make sure you're okay? To check that I'm alone? Maeve asked. Anna shrugged her shoulders. Protocol. Maeve stepped back and opened the door wide. Anna came in and surveyed the room. She looked at the bed and the blankets that lay in a heap on the floor. Must have been one hell of a nightmare, Anna said. Maeve, with her hands still clasped at her neck, swallowed hard and forced a smile. You have no idea. <laughs> Oh, Amanda, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It was so much fun talking to you, too. (laughs) Once again, much thanks to Amanda Headley for chatting with me. You can find out more about Amanda at her website, amandaheadley.com. You can also follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Amanda Headley and on Facebook at author. Amanda Headley. Thanks all for listening. Hope you join me next time. Take care and flowers. Mm-hmm.